This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center in downtown Santa Monica. Please be seated. We have a great show for you today. Um, for information on our guest and topic today, you can, as usual, go to our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and um, follow us on WordPress. Excuse me, follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. Our guest today is James Lewis. He's a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington D.C. It's one of the premier think tanks in Washington D.C. And we're glad to have him, um, Mr. Lewis. Thank you for joining us. Sure, happy to be on. Thank you for inviting me. And I want to give a shout out to a dear friend who uh, helped uh, facilitate this introduction, Linda Jameson, who I've known longer than either of us would care to admit. But um, she's a, a former CSIS alum. And again, thank you, Linda, for your efforts. So, James, tell us a little about CSIS. It's a nonpartisan, uh, which is increasingly hard to do, but we try a nonpartisan research center in Washington, and the focus is primarily on international relations and on international security. We don't really do many domestic issues. Cybersecurity is sort of unique in that way because it has a strong domestic element. Uh, we've been around for about 50 years, a little bit more, and um, try at this point we have uh, about 30 different programs doing research into different aspects of international relations. Mine happens to look at technology. And, and CIS, CSS is widely respected in Washington, and from, I remember from my time there, and definitely part of the, the key foreign policy establishment in within the city. Um, but more importantly, it ranks as the world's top think tank for defense and national security 
for the third consecutive year, according to the University of Pennsylvania study. So um, thank you for coming on. And so you, you tell us what led to putting together the um, Cyber Policy Task Force. Well, the, the, so I'll, I'll start with the report that came out in 2009. And because that's sort of a backdrop, in 2007, there was a series of unfortunate incidents where uh, China, I believe, uh, broke into a whole set of U.S. government agencies. And a couple of us got together and said, geez, maybe we ought to think about what the next president could do to prevent something like that from happening again. So these are both group efforts, and I was lucky to have uh, strong groups that I got to work with to come up with these reports. In the 2009 report was a, a sort of a global hit. Uh, many countries adopted its recommendations. And in 2015, people came and said, we should do another one. And I said, uh, no, I can't stand it. I can't do another one. Never again. Uh, <laughs> but we thought, well, what would be different? What would be different this time? So this time we did something that we didn't do before. Part of it is there's so many people interested in cybersecurity now. It's a much bigger group. So we had a West Coast group composed mainly of executives from Silicon Valley, and then an East Coast group composed mainly of people with government service. Each side selected topics they would work on, they came up with working papers, and then we used that set of working papers and recommendations as the basis for the report. And it was kind of astounding because it, more than 100 pages from the two groups and over 200 recommendations. So this was a group effort, and, and we really got some useful stuff out of it. So one thing that's interesting uh, in, in looking at it, um, and despite your reluctance, it is a really useful and report. Um, but it would, I would imagine in 2009, when you, when you first did the report, it, it, it was a whole different environment. I think the awareness of cybersecurity isn't quite what it is today. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Uh, it was, we thought of it as a greenfield at the time because very few people were working on it. And so one thing that struck me in looking at uh, the key principles in the report, there's a, there's a quote that jumped out at me, and you, you mentioned certain things that need to be done, certain principles. Um, one was creation of consequences for cybercrime, and then the other was since risk can't be completely eliminated, better cybersecurity also requires holding um, key critical infrastructures to a higher standard while incentivizing basic improvements in the general population of online actors. Um, but And then you say this important point. These tasks will require some additional resources, but resources are not the major obstacle to better cybersecurity. The major obstacle has been and remains confusion over the role of government and a lack of will. Can, can you yeah, and so, expand sure, on that? Sure, and one of the... One of the questions that people always have, and this goes beyond cybersecurity, is sometimes democracies don't act until there's a crisis. And we really haven't had a crisis in cybersecurity. We've had a few near misses, but mm -hmm. people, you know, it's, 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 while there's a lot of attention and a lot of noise, it's, it's still kind of a second tier issue. And so if you say to people, um, what uh, what do we need to do? You get a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, and 
maybe not as much action. The previous administration was really effective, and they put out executive orders, presidential directives, national strategies. But at the end of the day, we haven't seen the high-level commitment that we might need for some of these things to work. And, and why do you think that is? Just because it's it's not, you know, the the house isn't burning down, so to speak? Um, it's because uh, some of it's age. I mean, you have a lot of people, particularly in Washington, for whom the Internet is sort of a new thing. And they don't understand the technology. They don't understand their dependence on it. Uh, some of it is you haven't had a, a crisis. And we, there was a debate at the beginning is do we do we cry wolf or do we be a little more uh, serious about this? And some people thought that by saying we were facing a cyber Pearl Harbor or cyber 9-11, right. um, that, would, that would incentivize action. Well, we've been saying that for about 20 years now. And how many times can you ring the warning bell before people say, uh, Jesus isn't serious? And some of it is you have a bigger debate in the country about what should the role of government be? Right. Do we have too much regulation? Should we leave it to the market? Who's the best place to do this kind of thing? And until we resolve that larger debate, I think it's going to be difficult to make progress on cybersecurity. And I think that that goes to the heart of it, because I think a lot of the debate has been, well, the government should set standards, but make mm-hmm. them voluntary. Like, don't make us do what you say we have to do. <laughs> and in fact, the, um, so there's this thing called the NIST uh, cybersecurity framework. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a good thing. It's a part of the Obama legacy and uh, uh, useful. It's, it's, a lot of countries have copied it or used it itself. But I asked the people who wrote it, I said, why did you call it a framework? They said they weren't allowed to use the word standard because it sounded too heavy handed. So we've got a little bit of a little bit of reluctance to um, do things that we wouldn't worry about doing if it was airplane safety or automobile safety. Um, We aren't there yet in cybersecurity. So the, the report enumerates certain key action items. And let's see if we can kind of jump through them. Um, okay. One is that the the U.S. must the new president must decide on a new international strategy to account for a very different and dangerous global security environment. How is it different and more dangerous than it was when Obama took office? Well, when uh, in, at the end of the Bush administration, the beginning of the Obama administration, um, China was not seen as as big a threat. Uh, the Russians were our friends. Uh, we didn't have to worry about ISIS. Uh, it was just a, a time when it seemed a lot more, a lot more peaceful. We were in uh, two wars, but from a strategic level, you didn't have the Iran's, the North Koreas, the Chinas, and the Russias pushing back hard against the U.S. So we're in a much more conflictual environment, and uh, that makes it difficult to to stick with the policies we had at this point uh, six or seven years ago. And um, and you see, said your Russia was our friend. How right. and, and looking at the various threats right now, um, yeah. who is, I guess, threat number one? Well, it, it would have to be Russia. And if you look at what the Russians were saying to themselves, they kind of changed their minds about 2010. Uh, they decided that the 
U.S. This sounds crazy, but this is what you can find Russian leaders thinking. The U.S. has a secret plan to destroy Russia. And one of the jokes around here is they broke into NATO headquarters. They hacked NATO's computer networks to find the secret plan, and they couldn't find it. So what, what does that mean? It just means it's really well hidden. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so we, say, we don't have a secret. We don't have a secret plan to fix our highways. We don't have a secret plan to destroy Russia. But they, they see the Internet, and with some reason, they and the Chinese and the Iranians see the Internet as a, uh, a major threat to authoritarian rule, that people can say what they want, people can read what they want, and that's not in their interest. So the Russians decided to adopt... Uh, they would call it a defensive strategy. They would say push back against the triumphalism that had marked the U.S. Uh, since the end of the Cold War. And, and, and what better example of that triumphalism than the Internet, really? Um, yeah. that, that broadcast of American values, American capitalism, American mm-hmm. plural, pluralism. And, uh, but yeah, I actually had, I was involved in a meeting with Chinese netizens. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, many of them have have been censored, or some were subsequently imprisoned. And you know, the thing that it came clear to you know in those discussions was that the most dangerous weapon they held and they held was not any mm-hmm. gun or anything like that. It was just a cell phone and the ability to microblog and to you know to say and organize. It wasn't just a speech; it was also the ability to organize through it. And I think, you know, Arab Spring really you know, woke right. up um, some right. of these leaders. And all of a sudden, you started, you know, people started talking about how do you shut off the Internet? And you have uh, Prime Minister Medvedev of Russia saying, look at Arab Spring. Look what they did. We are next. So that was a few years ago. And more recently, uh, Vladimir Putin has said that the Internet is a CIA plot. Right. So a strong degree of paranoia uh, that's led them to push back against what they see as a, and as you note, probably correctly, what they see as a mortal threat to their control. It's interesting. There was a, Ron Howard had a movie, The Paper, and um, mm-hmm. Randy Quaid played this one really paranoid um reporter who said you know you know i wouldn't be so paranoid if everyone wasn't out to get me but um (laughs) which may which may sum up correctly the the russian perspective on this so one of the other key action items is uh the next president the incoming president president trump must make a greater effort to reduce and control cybercrime how what tools and does he have to do that and how, how should he approach that one of the things that's also changed since 2009 is that um, cybercrime has become much more sophisticated, much more active, and much more, co- much more costly to companies. So you've seen uh, a growth in criminal activity, and these are very sophisticated actors. Some of the cybercrime groups are uh, as good or better than most countries when it comes to hacking. And so the if you if you would look at it, it wasn't really until the end of the administration and then just with China that you had cabinet level officials talking to their foreign counterparts about the need to control cybercrime. So we need to find a way to energize the international community 
this is something that is a trans-border problem, meaning the criminals live in one country and they commit the crimes in another. That makes them hard to catch, hard to stop. We've got to figure out a solution to that. And it, how much of that is just the, the crime element and how much of it is it referring to was um, sometimes this referred to as hacktivism? Um, hacktivism is... Uh, Really, really a relatively small problem, uh, you know, because first it could involve free speech, right? And it's always a little complicated there. So crime is a much bigger problem. Crime is taking money or intellectual property or personal information. Activists, sometimes they'll take emails and release them for political effect. Really? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a shock, isn't it? But that might be a crime. It might not be a crime, but... We're talking about people who've taken bank robbery, bank robbery and uh, mugging in, onto the internet, and it's a much bigger problem. And mechanized it, yeah. That, that yeah, and automated it. Yeah. So um, the, your third task, I'm just going to note, um, is we must accelerate efforts to secure critical infrastructure and services and improve cyber hygiene across economic sectors. And this must must develop a new approach to securing government agencies and services and improve authentication of identity. Um, so both a private and public sector yeah. need. It's it's quite a wish list. That's sort of the domestic uh, cybersecurity policy paragraph. Um, critical infrastructure is uh, a potential vulnerability when you think of, say, the electrical grid and. There's mixed reviews uh, as to how well we've done in, in making it secure. Some companies have done a good job, others ha haven't. But we, we don't want to find out the hard way that, um, that uh, critical infrastructures can be hacked. Uh, right now, I don't think anyone who's in the hack business would say the U.S. is safe, right? So we need to change that. And how we change that, you know, heavy-handed regulation is not the approach that people want or need. At one point, DHS wanted to be the Uber regulator for cybersecurity. You had almost universal agreement that that was a bad idea. Um, but <laughs> we have to figure something out. And the, the NIST framework was a good first step. But now we have to say, what more do you want to do? And in some cases, we might want to hold some companies to higher standards. Uh, then not make it voluntary and just the way we wouldn't say airline safety is voluntary you know inspect actions if you feel like it uh so that would be <laughs> a hard problem but one we're going to have to confront we may not confront it until something bad happens but in an ideal world we'd get ahead of it um cyber hygiene is that that still most of the hacks you see rely on the most basic techniques i mean there are really skilled hackers who go after the banks, right. uh, after government agencies. But for most people, since they aren't doing anything, they aren't patching their systems, they aren't thinking about the websites they visit, they're clicking on that link in the phishing email. This is basic stuff. So how do we clean up the basics? And that would, uh, the Australian government did a uh, study and found that if you do the basic stuff, you can reduce about 80% of the successful hacks. Wow. So that's, that's a big payoff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so still not, not a small investment, but definitely a big payoff. Um, we're yeah. going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to have more with James Lewis on his latest, of uh, second, actually, um, recommendation to the president Final. on cyber security. we <laughs> <laughs> back after these messages. Great. The Cyber Law and Business Report, after this brief recess for our sponsors. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjord, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Pick out some new favorite podcasts now at cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly, and we're we're talking with James Lewis on his um, second cybersecurity report. Although there is a chance he may be doing a third one very briefly, according to English oddsmakers. The chances that the betting odds are 11 to 10 that President Trump won't complete his first term. So you may just have to dust off a new cover wow. um, to make it the uh, cybersecurity agenda for the 46th president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, there's nothing else we can change the cover, but let's wait and see. I mean, it's it's a little early. It's, it's only been 25 days, so uh, let's see how things play out. But um, but you did say it was the last. It just is that just because you hopefully you think uh, the, the uh, we'll have much more progress the next time we're, we're having a change in administration, or it's just it's it's such a large task you'd, you'd rather not do it again. Um, it's it's uh it's uh even with a really strong group behind you, it's a it's a lot of work. We had multiple briefings. Uh, we had some pretty intense discussions. Uh, we had. Uh, 
a lot of drafting both by the group members and then I had to do a lot of uh, the drafting as well. So everyone put a huge amount of work into it. And it can, it can, in December, this is pretty much all I did for the whole month is getting the final product ready. And other people were in the same boat. So we need a break. Um, we're talking about securing government agencies and improving mm-hmm. authenticity of identity. I, was, I saw a report uh, in one of the Washington trade press about the number of government computers that are running on systems that are are no longer supported, which mm-hmm. means you know, there there's no patches. There's you know they are very vulnerable to attack because of that. And are you familiar with the the extent of that problem? Yeah, that was actually one of the recommendations from our West Coast group is that the. Uh, U.S., really everyone needs to pay attention to what they call their refresh cycle, that after yes. after a few years, you know, the product just isn't defensible anymore, not only because the patching isn't available, but because hackers have had time to go through it, they've found the vulnerabilities. So, yes, it's a big problem for the government that it has a, a, a stately uh, refresh process at many agencies. I mean, on one level, I can see the fact that if you're using an outdated system, that actually might provide some some level of security in that you know most of the hackers are focused on the current systems and you know their exploits. Um, but if you're sitting on something that's quite lucrative and there's easy access, I would have to think that's that's quite an invitation. We we used to have a joke that. Uh, you know, the FAA was safe because they were running proprietary code on a mainframe computer. And there were only two guys in the world who knew how the code worked, and they both retired to Florida. So very difficult to hack. But what we've seen probably in the last decade, though, is that more and more agencies, more and more companies, everyone has migrated to to largely a Windows platform. And so you're using uh, Windows, and if you're using Windows 2000 or Windows XP, uh, or anything earlier, um, you're probably vulnerable. And so how does the government address that? I mean, because uh, the the obvious answer is you would have to spend substantially more in upgrading your systems. I think if you streamline acquisitions, if you uh, move to more managed services, uh, then uh, you avoid some of that problems. And that was, that was part of what we were, we talk about that later on in the paper, but does every agency need to run its own email system or should they buy it from one of the big services, you know, Apple, Google, right. Microsoft, then they do the work for you. And does every agency need to have its own uh, data storage, its own cloud, or do they buy one of the big, uh, you know, from one of the big service providers? And there's a way you can outsource a lot of this uh, so that you're not in the business of having to think about patching, think about refreshing or think about defense. And one of the things about OPM is um, you had a a relatively small IT shop uh, versus the People's Liberation Army of China. It's just not a fair contest. One one of the ways you can manage this is by moving to these managed services. And OPM is the Office of Personal Management, which had a very significant hack, which led to, I think the exact number, but scores of federal employees having their information accessed 
um, by the seventeen point two million. Seventeen point two million. I I I, yeah. I I think that's beyond scores. But um, yes, and uh, <laughs> were you ever were you one of them? Of course, almost everyone in Washington with his security clearance uh, got to share the uh, joy. So you got a note from after mo- a couple of months, you got a note from OPM saying, "We're sorry, and we'll do credit monitoring for a year." Well, that's a big relief. But yeah, uh, seventeen point, and there's another, I think, another two million uh, spouses involved. So all in all, it was probably close to twenty million people. And you, you laugh about it, and we all get these notices. Do you think there's a, the fact that it, it happens so often that it's desensitized people to what that means? It, it has desensitized them a bit, but we're also seeing something that uh, people have feared for a long time. And in the last year or so, you see people beginning to say, well, maybe I shouldn't do this on the internet. Maybe I should go back to paper. The president, when he said, um, we should use couriers. Uh, I've, heard, I've heard companies say that as well. So you're getting a sense of distrust about the internet in, in, aden- in addition to being jaded about the constant notices of breaches. And it's the distrust that poses economic risk. And you, you mentioned a couple of things in the report um, that need to be addressed. Um, one of which uh, I'm going to get back to in a minute is, is the data security element. But you, you mentioned the importance of a convention that, frankly, I haven't heard talked about in too much detail in the, the cybersecurity debate lately. And that's the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime. Um, mm-hmm. tell, tell us about that and why it's important that the U.S. lead and, and try to bring this um, to greater adoption. It says something about the treaty that very few people know about it, but it was an agreement among first uh, about 20 or 30 nations uh, to come up with a basic set of what your cybersecurity laws should look like. And so the, the fundamental principle very close to U.S. law is that you shouldn't go on somebody else's computer without their permission. And then there should be penalties. And it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a framework, if you will, for national cybersecurity law. But it's got two problems. The, the first problem is um, it was negotiated in Europe. And so you have countries like Brazil and India and China saying, hey, we're not just going to take this thing without having any role in negotiating it. You, you know, this is, this is colonialism. So we need to have a vehicle that takes into account the desire of these important countries to be involved in the negotiations. The second problem is the pace of adoption has been really slow. There's about 50 countries around the world now that uh, have adopted it. And at that rate, um, we'll have complete adoption early in the next century. So we, we need to we need to find a way to pick up the Yeah, I know it's such a relief. Uh, and that, that would be, but you'll be on your thirtieth report. But yeah, um, yeah. So, but that's it's an important convention, but we need to think of a way to re-energize it. But there's also one significant non-adopter, and that's Russia. Yeah, they have all sorts of funny claims. They say it's a violation of their sovereignty and it would let the FBI intrude into their networks without asking permission. And it's all, it's all just made up. But 
cybercrime is really important for the Russians. Uh, they use it uh, as a way to have proxies. Uh, they like the money. So one of the bigger problems we face is if the Russians aren't going to cooperate in law enforcement, we're always going to have a problem. Most of the big banking hacks that you see, not all, but most, come out of Russia. And um, one thing you talked about in terms of getting Brazil involved, Brazil is actually taking a leadership role or attempted to take a leadership role in the area of cyber governance. So mm -hmm. this is clearly an important issue to them. And, and so how do you get them engaged to sign up to the, these, this protocol? Um, I think you have to think of a way to let them, they had this, uh, you're talking about the Net Mundial conference yes. in 2014, uh, very successful conference, broad endorsement of democratic principles. Uh, I think only Russia and Cuba didn't endorse the democratic principles, but, uh, cybercrime is a little different because to, to, to make it work, you have to have your national legislature pass laws, pass implementing laws that say, this is a crime, this is a penalty. And we know we can just track around the world. Countries that have weak cybersecurity laws or weak penalties tend to be more often than not the victims of cybercrime. So, you know, I think working with the Brazilians to make them feel comfortable to give them an opportunity to express what they think is important in the treaty or maybe to uh, get their their concerns addressed in it. That's something we have to do. But of course, they're preoccupied uh, with their own internal scandals. Right. Uh, so maybe a while, yeah. They seem to have the, uh, the political yeah. aversion of a pitched warfare going on there. Yeah, uh, you have some big corruption scandals that are tying the presidency and the, the legislature into knots. And so they'll have to work through that probably before we can see much progress on cybercrime. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't engage. And true. And, and so um, the other major initiative that you had, um, in addition to um, the Budapest, was trying to get a greater uh, effort on data security. And one thing that struck me, and uh, I was, was surprised to to read it, was that you, you wanted to create greater emphasis on the FTC's role in that area, and that the FTC should even create a, a division of consumer data privacy. Um, could tell us about that recommendation. That was another one of the West Coast recommendations. They uh, felt very strongly that, and these were. CISOs and CTOs and VPs from uh, a lot of the big IT companies. And they said, look, we're moving to a data-driven economy. We're moving to a world where the, the way data works has escaped some of the old privacy rules that we've had. So we need to adjust to the fact that, that data is now important, that how people use it is different. The amount of data on you as an individual generated by your cell phone, if you haven't thought about it, it's, it's location, it's shopping preferences, it's contact lists. Um, all of these things create a new environment. And some people even say the definition we have of personal information doesn't catch a lot of the things that your phone generates. So I think that was it, is how do we update uh, our privacy laws? 
how do we take into account that this is now a economy where data is so crucial to company activity and to personal privacy? And, and but at the same time, there's been this ideological battle over whether that's the FTC's role. There was a number of cases that the FTC had, most most notably the Wyndham Hotels case, where you know. The FTC's ability to regulate in this area was openly challenged, and they ultimately prevailed. But you know, the, the thinking would, was that with a new incoming Republican administration, um, that might get downgraded, um, given the you know the ideological bent of you know of less regulation, particularly since the the, the Trump hotels that you know, had actually paid fines for data breaches. And we had both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, we had people who were on the, ultimately on the transition team involved. And, you know, I think the sense was that, one, we couldn't think of another agency that was better placed to do this. And two, um, you're, you, we, as is often the case, just the amount of data being generated, the need to protect it better, um, that will drive us to do something different. And, and nobody's in favor of, of really broad regulation, but people felt FTC was the best place to do this. Now, it, the FTC has a, an important role under your recommendations, but it also seems that the, you, you view the quarterback, so to speak, um, as the for the cybersecurity efforts in in the U.S., um, should be the Department of Homeland Security. Could you explain what you think their role should be? That was a, a huge debate. Uh, and we ended up having a, a subgroup that looked specifically at that. We had multiple briefings uh, from DHS and from the White House. And, of course, one of our co-chairs, uh, Chairman Michael McCall, who was great, is the co-chair in the 2009 report as well, He's the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, so he had a, he asked us to specifically look at what DHS should do. Huge debate uh, that lasted for a year, and some of us, including me, started out by saying, you know, let's just it shouldn't be DHS; it should be somebody else. And then you work through this drill. Well, who is somebody else? People don't want it to be the FBI. They don't want it to be the military. They don't want it to be NSA. You end up being stuck with DHS as the survivor. There was a big related debate about should we give critical infrastructure uh, to DOD? Would that be the thing that we should recommend? Right. And what we found is that most big companies did not support that. They didn't want DOD to be uh, a regulator of civilian infrastructure. There's some constitutional issues. So at the end of the day, uh, not entirely willingly, but because there wasn't really a realistic alternative. We said, you have to go with DHS. You have to strengthen it and make it actually work. And then uh, they would, would be the place where we do cybersecurity. Now, we did put a footnote in that said, look, after a year or two, if you haven't been able to make DHS work, create a new standalone agency because we can't wait anymore for this place to figure out uh, what it's doing. Right, because there is this debate about DHS, Department of Homeland Security, which has was thrown together through a whole bunch of disparate agencies together in this new, um, you know, behemoth bureaucracy. Uh, that that it itself is not necessarily a 
a well-functioning institution. <laughs> uh, sad but true. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways, the um, we we looked at so we had the in, one of the interesting things was in the first report we had a fair number of people who'd worked at DHS. And they were united in saying DHS should not be responsible. In the second report, we had a number of people who'd also worked at DHS, but this time their attitude had changed. They felt that DHS should be the place where the mission is focused. Huh. So I, that was interesting, but the the sense was when you look at the budget, when you look at the numbers, um, this isn't a priority for DHS. It's a fraction of the total agency budget. It's a very small workforce. Um, their mission is unfocused. It's not just cyber, it's building protection and physical mm-hmm. protection. And they, they need to, it's, a, it's still a part of the secretary's office. It's sort of an adjunct to the secretary's office. So we said, make it a real agency, give them a chance, let DHS do it. Now, it's interesting, you, you mentioned that it, they did not want it to be um, the Pentagon. And you know, our whole national part of our infrastructure, particularly the, the national highway system, um, comes from the fact that there was a young army officer who engaged in uh, a, an exercise after World War One, in which involved you know, transporting large quantities of equipment from one part of the country to the other, and it, it took forever. And that person eventually became the, the leader of the Allies in World War II and the, President Eisenhower. And so he saw the critical infrastructure as a, from a military perspective, as a needs to, a way to efficiently protect ourselves. You know, the, we need the ability to be able to move our troops from one part of the country to another. And, and despite it also having huge commercial you know, mm-hmm. benefits but he saw this first and foremost as a, a a key element of our security. Yeah, and I think that the you know the DOD was also responsible for the internet. The the difference is, and there's an ambiguity. So DOD's mission is to defend the nation, right? And they're responsible for our national security. There's a little bit of ambiguity, and so you need to think where do I draw the line? And the highway line would be. We don't have the military doing highway patrol. We don't have the military repairing the roads. Uh, we don't have the military setting automobile safety standards. And that's kind of where people came out is you need civilian agencies to engage in these functions. You need people who um, come at it from a civilian perspective. Uh, that was surprisingly, there were three people in the group who felt really strongly it should be a DOD. Everyone else, felt really strongly that it should not. So that's where we came out. What was the argument for why it should be DOD? The argument is, well, DOD, one, DOD has the capability. And so they're, of course, talking about NSA. Um, NSA is the the best cyber agency in the country, followed by FBI. And somewhere in maybe fourth place or fifth place is DHS. And so they said, why wouldn't you go with the the best? Uh, And the answer is because people don't want a military agency or an intelligence agency doing this. So that was the argument that, uh, you know, DHS doesn't have the capability. Uh, DHS will never have the capability. Let's change. And we said, 
give them a chance, give them the resources, see if they can do it. And uh, on this show, uh, the number one rank is our sponsors. And so we're gonna take a we're gonna take a short break, and then we come back. We're gonna finish up uh, with Mr. Lewis and talk about the final recommendations for uh, awareness to action: a cybersecurity agenda for the 45th president. Um, we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on Cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Cranberry Radio is your new destination for education, entertainment, and engagement. Get educated and entertained by our panel of on-air experts and peers. And engage with us anytime by following us on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and LinkedIn. So you can reach us before and after every program. Located on our new social shareable live streaming player. Access the new Cranberry Radio live stream player at our website, cranberry.fm. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. More refreshing talk radio on air and on demand 24-7. Only on Cranberry Radio. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. A couple of quick shout-outs. One to the University of Connecticut women's basketball team. Their 100 straight win. Um, Quite an achievement. And uh, you just look at the context of that. It's it's remarkable, considering the longest men's one's only 88. And they've broken that twice. Um, For those of you listening in St. Louis, happy birthday. The city was founded in 1764 on this day. And most excellent, uh, Wayne's World turns 25 this week. And so um, I haven't definitely, if you haven't seen the movie, as silly and ridiculous as it is, you definitely should see it. Um, you are definitely worthy to see it. So uh, we're talking cybersecurity. That, I, I can't say I've made that transition from Wayne's World to cybersecurity. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, hey, you have to adapt. But uh, we're talking cybersecurity uh, with, with one of the renowned experts in the field and um, James Lewis with CSIS. And um, and looking at with the and kind of concluding and looking at the the four years ahead or however long it is, um, what will define whether or not we're successful or not? What it would be? What if you're looking back? What are the one or two things you're going to look at to see whether we were successful? We'll want to see if the level of cybercrime has gone down. 
we'll want to see if uh, the four state opponents we have, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, have reduced their activity against the U.S. And we'll want to see if we're more comfortable that our critical infrastructure and our personal information uh, are better protected. So those are pretty straightforward measures, and you can probably translate them into numbers in most cases. Now, one, one thing in the news, and I'm not sure to what degree it, it's true, um, but there's reports that you know, Snowden may long, no longer have a home in Soviet Union, excuse me, in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what do you think should happen to Snowden? Well, if he comes back, he's facing significant jail time. And, you know, the argument that uh, he, he did this for privacy reasons and he, he's actually a hero, that's probably not going to fly at the Department of Justice. So absent something like a, uh, uh, a, a strong political intervention. But I don't see anyone pardoning him. I mean, the problem I have with Snowden is, you know, I get him wanting to reveal the NSA surveillance program. Okay, that makes sense. But when he did that, he also revealed other things. One of the things I saw was he, he revealed that the United States uh, monitored uh, Russian strategic nuclear forces, right? Well, that has nothing to do with privacy and right. letting the Russians know uh, didn't help us. So it's kind of a mixed bag. If, 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 if the Russians are going to kick him out, they should do what he should have done in the first place. They should send him to Brazil. No extradition treaty, nice speeches. He'll like it. <laughs> and you know it's a similar amount of chaos there as there is here today but he'll go um, right at home yeah <laughs> and the thing is always <laughs> but it is better weather than dc but the thing yeah. about it is though that um like you know both with, with wikileaks and assange who yeah. also may um be looking for, maybe on airbnb looking for a home um because of a deteriorating relationship with with ecuador um, you know, he also you know, has been praised for somehow exposing this kind of cybersecurity um, big brother, but he has also been criticized for over-leaking to the extent that he's endangered human rights activists and other people. Yeah, and I, Assange and Snowden are different in that Snowden, uh, you can point to clear violations of the law. And you can't really do that with Assange. I mean, it's funny because uh, Snowden is probably the more likable character, but Assange really hasn't broken any laws. He might have broken some laws in Sweden, but that's a different issue. Right. Uh, so, so Assange, um, you know, he there's people talked a lot about should should we uh, try and uh, indict him uh, with the with the Chelsea Manning case at that point, Bradley Manning. And I don't think they could find any grounds to indict him. I mean, he's not, someone gave him information, he published it. Um, that's probably a protected activity. So a very different case. In uh, Snowden's case, he uh, illicitly took information and then, and then published it himself, inadvertently also giving it to Russia and China. So two very different cases. Assange, I know the Ecuadorians are getting tired of having him live in their broom closet. They're probably ready to have him go. But I, he doesn't, it's hard to see how you could make a credible criminal charge against Assange. 
other than the one that's pending in Sweden, you know, for rape. But um, so we only have a few minutes left. If people want to learn more about you know, what you're doing and what CSS is doing, where should they go? Uh, to our website, of course, which can be, uh, you know, uh, a little difficult to navigate at times, but we're working on it to make it better. If you go to CSIS and you type in cybersecurity or technology, you'll get not only this report, but a lot of the other work we've done uh, over the last few years. So it's it's one of the strengths of this institution and a lot of information on our website, w, go to www.csis.org and type cybersecurity into the search engine. You'll get more than you ever wanted. Now, we, we and, and on the show notes at Cyberlaw Radio, we also have links to your website, to your Facebook page, as well as to your, your Twitter account. Are you going to be speaking anytime soon on this topic? Uh, actually, the the there was just a panel yesterday at the RSA conference with uh, two of the co-chairs, Samir Balotra and Karen Evans, and a few other people like Nico Sell, who had been on the commission. So we'll probably do. Uh, we had uh, Ian Mulholland, the uh, VP from um, uh, VMware, testify. I think uh, a couple days ago in front of Congress. So there's there's a stream. We're not. We'll just, you know, it's more as people read it and realize they want to know more about it, we'll do events. But, uh, yeah, there's just a content. And that will, should be on our webpage as well, if we're lucky, that you can find um, where we'll, someone will be speaking next on this. Uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us. And once again, thank Linda Jameson for hooking us up. Uh, before we, one last uh, question. Do you, what, is, what is your favorite part of Wayne's World? Um. Uh, you know, it's, I'm the wrong person to ask because the, the I live in Alexandria, Virginia, and one of the neighborhoods there is called Wayneswood, and we always <laughs> call it Wayne's World, right? Which is a, sort of a reflection on the elementary school there. So, I just like the name. Uh, <laughs> it's been very handy for all these years. It, it sounds like a most excellent neighborhood. Well, thank you very much. It's been a, it's been a pleasure having you, and this it, is a very important discussion. And I want to thank you, you know, on behalf of the country, really, for the leadership you have shown in this space and building awareness for this for you know our, our last two presidents. And um, you, you've done a great service to the country. And uh, thank you for all you've done. Um, next week we will have. Walter O'Brien, the real-life genius behind CBS's Scorpion, so join us then. But thanks again to Mr. Lewis and CSAS. We'll be back next week here at 10 a.m. Um, Pacific, um, 1 p.m. Eastern, Cyberlaw Business Report, only on cranberry.fm. And check us out at the Internet Law Center, internetlawcenter.net. See us on Twitter, Cyberlaw Radio, and have a great week, everyone. Thank you very much. opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. 
Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.